How do you know if God is blessing you? In our chapters this morning, Ezra 7 and 8, we see a phrase along the lines of the hand of the Lord our God was upon him or upon them six times. We see it in chapter 7, verse 6, chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 7, verse 28, chapter 8, verses 18, 22, and 31. Why did Ezra and the people who go with him succeed in their mission to return to Jerusalem bringing treasures and the goodwill of King Artaxerxes to that place, because God's hand was upon them. But why was God's hand upon them? I would argue that the answer is found in Ezra 7, verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to, first of all, study the law, second of all, practice it, and third, teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. And so I think Ezra calls us by his example to set your heart toward God to find his strength for the work. Set your heart toward God to find his strength for the work. I think from chapter 7, we see that setting your heart toward God finds favor with God and man. Ezra, we see in verses 6 and 10, pursued God. He was skilled in the law, it says in verse 6. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. What did the scribes do? They preserved and copied the word of God. And to the extent that he had done that faithfully and diligently, he was familiar with what God had said and was then equipped to proclaim it to other people. Alongside of that, he was determined in his heart to serve God well. We see that in verse 10. He had set his heart. This was determination and commitment and purposing what he was going to do before God. I would also point out, I was reflecting on this as Evan was reading those, um, the kind of uh, genealogy. Why is there this extended genealogy of who Ezra is? Because the book is pointing out for us that he's a descendant of Aaron, the, the chief priest, the high priest. So God had at a moment when the people of Israel were being reestablished in their worship of God back in the land, sent and stirred up and prepared a descendant of Aaron the high priest, to lead them in that task. Along those lines, Ezra also acknowledged that God is the one who moves kings' hearts and gives strength for the work. We see this in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So that's his response to the letter of the king that we see in verses 11 through 26, which I'll give you an overview of now. But first of all, what was Ezra like? He was someone who pursued God. Because he pursued God, he found favor with the king. God gave Ezra a good standing with the king. We see this both in verse 6, where it says, The king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And verses 11 through 26, as we see a parallel response from Artaxerxes to that that we saw last week from Darius in chapters 5 and 6. What does the king do? The king sent the people back home to Jerusalem. We see this in verses 11 through 13. Artaxerxes says to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, 
And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. So that's the first component of the king's decree. You can return to the land. Those who want to go back to the land and serve God there can go. The second thing that showed the favor of the king and God's work in this situation is that the king is actually sending Ezra to check on both Jerusalem and Judah to return silver and gold and the utensils for the temple. So we see this in verse 14. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and to bring the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold, which you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people, who, and of all the priests who offered willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls, and rams and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house your God which is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do according to the will of your God. Also the utensils which are given to you for the service of the house your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. The rest of the needs for the house of your God for which you may have occasion to provide provide for it from the royal treasury. And so the king is sending him. Now, this idea to inquire is could be sort of an investigation of what's going on. But I think there's also an element of which it is coming before God. Remember the phrase that you see often in the Old Testament that someone was going to inquire of the Lord whether to do this or that. There's, a, there's an element of Ezra being in a role of interceding before God that um, parallels what we see in... Um, Chapter 6, verse 10, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So there is a recognition that Ezra is going as a representative both of the king and of God on behalf of the people of Israel and on behalf of the king of Babylon to intercede for and to oversee um, this responsibility. And this is a significant responsibility, that there are offerings that are being sent, that there's a restoration of utensils that uh, had been taken from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar and, and to restore those. And we see those in, um, we saw that in chapter 6, verse 5, let the gold and silver utensils be returned and brought. And there might be a question, why is... Um, why is Artaxerxes saying the same thing again? And there's a couple of potential explanations. One would be that not everything was taken up the first time when they returned. Um, or there's also the potential that um, nothing was taken up. Because we see in verse 13 uh, of chapter 6 that these things, uh, the, the governor... And the colleagues carried out the decree with diligence as King Darius had sent. But it's possible that they were unable to bring up the utensils with them in the first wave and all of the offerings and that there were probably further offerings that taken place. We'll talk more about the relationship between Artaxerxes and Darius in just a moment. We see a parallel decree in verses 21 through 24 to authorize expenses from the royal treasury. I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers in the provinces beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may inquire of you or require of you, it shall be done diligently. 
even up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil and salt is needed. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. We also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax on tribute or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. So the king, as we saw in chapter 6, authorized expenses out of the taxes and the royal treasury to accomplish the restoration of worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And furthermore, not only were they paying for the worship of God out of the royal treasury, but they were also saying, and then you can't tax the priests and the Levites. The king also commissions Ezra to appoint judges. You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. One of the things that's fascinating to me about the decree of Artaxerxes is, and maybe I could illustrate it this way, um, have you ever written a letter on behalf of someone else, but they sort of tell you all the things to put in the letter? There's a degree to which Ezra has, I think, taught King Artaxerxes about the worship of the true God. Why do I say that? Because otherwise, how does a pagan king know but there's supposed to be, for example, verse 16, a free will offering. And verse 17, that there are supposed to be bulls and rams and lambs, grain offerings and drink offerings. That's not a thing that a pagan king would have automatically known to, to explore uh, the, the worship of one of the subject peoples that have been conquered by one of his predecessors. I suppose we could say, well, he was just really curious about other religions or something like that. But in the context, the most logical understanding in my mind is that Ezra taught him about all of these things. So that when the king issues the decree, he knows exactly what Ezra is going to need because Ezra has told him, here's how we're supposed to worship God as his people of Israel in Jerusalem. Again, even something really specific like verse 22, where there is the idea of wheat and wine and oil and salt. Those are all elements of temple worship that Ezra has to have communicated to him either before he issues the decree and, and by way of advice or over the course of time, Ezra has taught him what God is like and what God required of the people. The principle of not imposing tax on the Levites parallels what we see in the law of Moses, that they were not considered part of the people uh, for purposes of taxation, but the other 11 tribes, things were collected from them to provide for the priests and Levites. This idea of judges being appointed to teach people the law of God as being a necessary part of what was supposed to be happening in the life of the people of Israel, that's something else that Ezra would have had to have communicated to the king, this is supposed to happen, and so either he's saying, I'm asking you to commission me to do this, or he had already talked to the king enough about it that the king just said, this is what we're going to do. Now, we do see some similarities and differences between chapter 5 and chapter 6. 
I would say it this way. While this is a continuation of the positive attitude, the favorable attitude of Darius of Persia in chapters 5 and 6, it's a remarkable change from what we see of another king or the same king named Artaxerxes in chapter 4. We talked about this last week. Some people would say Artaxerxes starts out at the beginning of his reign in opposition to the people of Israel, and then seven years later has changed his mind, uh, has friendship with Ezra, all of those sorts of things, and then um, sends, uh, sends him out to accomplish the work. Um, there's, there, there's two explanations. Either they're two different people or God radically changed the heart of Artaxerxes like he did with Nebuchadnezzar. I lean toward the idea that Ezra is laid out in chronological order for the most part. There is some chapter 7 and chapter 8. Chapter 8 is a retelling of the summary of chapter 7. So it's not a strictly chronological order, but chapters 1 through 6, I think, lay out the events that lead up to the moment when Ezra returns to Jerusalem. I would also point out that it's quite possible that the uh, Persian king that we see in the book of Esther came between Darius and Artaxerxes, so that there are several periods of favor and then opposition to God's people. So, for example, it would have been um, Cyrus, and then after Cyrus, there's opposition. And then Darius, and then after Darius, there's opposition. There's the threat by um, Haman and the plot against the people of Israel. And then now there's favor from King Artaxerxes. Those historical details aside, the main point is that I would argue Ezra is a type or a forerunner or an anticipation of Jesus. And here's the parallel I would draw. Not maybe in the formal sense as in the New Testament refers to Ezra as a foreshadowing of Jesus. But here's, here's the parallel I would draw. Remember the verse in Luke where it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men? I think we see a close parallel here to Ezra who sets his heart toward God and grows in the knowledge of God and in God's favor with the king. And maybe you don't see as close as a parallel as it seemed to me, but my point is, at the very least, there are parallels between Ezra's pursuit of God and Jesus' pursuit of and obedience to God that we see in the New Testament. Not only do we see that anticipation of Jesus and his work, but we see that God granted strength for the work that needed to be done. They travel from Babylon to Jerusalem, they safely deliver the treasures without any incidents, and they continue the worship of God properly. So if seeking God diligently, setting your heart toward God, brings favor with God and men, then I would say setting your heart towards God also finds his strength for the work. Now, I'm not skipping over the genealogy in the beginning of chapter 8 because it's completely unimportant, but because I think the main point for us at the moment is found in verses 15 through 36. There's a... a the, Verses 1 through 14 point to the order and the diligence and the care and the attention that Ezra is giving. But we also see that in verses 15 through 20, so I'll, I'll highlight it for you there. First of all, we see that Ezra organizes the people to make sure they're all included in the return. So we see in verse 5, uh, not verse 5, rather verse 15, when I observed the people, I did not find any Levites. So the king says, anyone who wishes to go back can... Ezra evaluates the group of people who are ready to go, and he says, wait, there's no Levites among the number of people who are heading back. 
So he sends for some. We see this in verses 16 and 17. To bring ministers for the house of our God. There are several explanations for why he would have felt like he needed to do this. One is that they already had some that had gone up uh, alongside Zerubbabel and others, but to the extent that they had grown old and or there's a problem that we're going to see at the end of the book, they intermarried with the peoples of the land and stopped worshiping God the way they were supposed to, there needed to be men who were qualified to serve in the temple. So whether he knew this based on communication about the situation in Jerusalem or he anticipated that they needed it, he said, all right, we're going to go up and we're going to make sure there's people to fill all of these roles in the worship at the temple. God grants his request and works things out so that there are wise men. We see, for example, in verse 18 that um, Sherebiah is a man of insight and presumably along with him his sons and brothers and others as well are ready to come up and to serve in the temple the way that they're supposed to. So Ezra organizes the people to make sure that, not the quota, but that the right sorts of people, all of the roles will be filled when they arrive there in Jerusalem. Then he proclaims a fast to seek, I know we did, some people maybe don't love this phrase, to seek God's mercy on their travel, right? So they fast, verse 21, I proclaimed a fast, that we might seek from him a safe journey. They did not ask the king for help. He said, I was ashamed to request from the king protection from the enemy on the way because we had said, God can protect us. And if they, he then goes and says, and can you also send soldiers? It seems to undermine this, the confidence and the faith by which he said, God can protect us on the way. And so because this was important, because there were dangers, because their caravan or group would have been attractive to robbers to the extent that they have treasures being sent with them. This was something that word it would have been almost impossible if there's a public decree from Artaxerxes to say they're going to be going back with lots of stuff that's really valuable. It would have been almost impossible for that not have got word not to have gotten out to robbers and threats along the way. And so they are praying diligently, fasting and praying to God, protect us on our journey. we see that God answers their prayer in verses 31 and 32. Ezra then set apart priests to oversee the treasure. We see this in verses 24 through 30. I set apart Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and others of the leading priests. I weighed out to them silver, gold, and utensils, the offering for the house of our God. And I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, silver utensils worth 100 talents, 100 gold talents, 20 gold bowls, worth a thousand derricks, two utensils of bronze, precious as gold. And I said, you are, to holy to the, you are holy to the Lord, and the utensils are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leading priests in the chambers of the house, uh, sorry, the leading priests, the Levites, and the heads of the fathers of Israel in Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites accepted the weighed out silver and gold in the utensils to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. For me, this has a parallel to what we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul gathers a collection from the churches, a freewill offering to alleviate the needs of the poor in Jerusalem during times of famine and persecution. And he says the right way to handle this is for it to be collected in an orderly way 
for it to be passed off to trustworthy people, and for it to be guarded until it gets to Jerusalem. The gift is delivered so that there can be no question of wrongdoing or of theft or any of those sorts of things. There's a close parallel between the way things are handled here and the way that Paul, I think, potentially looking at this example, treats the offering for the poor in Jerusalem in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And they keep them safe. They accept it, and they brought it to Jerusalem. Verse 30. And then Ezra leads the people back. We journeyed from near Babylon on the twelfth of the first month. The hand of our God was over us, and he delivered us from the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. On the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of our God into the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with him were the Levites, Jezebed, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. Everything was numbered and weighed, and all the weight was recorded at that time. The exiles who had come from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all of Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats for a sin offering, all as a burnt offering to the Lord. Then they delivered the king's edicts to the king's satraps and to the governors in the provinces beyond the river, and they supported the people in the house of God. So the people rest on their return in verses 31 and 32. They remain there for three days. Then the treasures are returned to the temple. Then the offerings were fulfilled as prescribed, and then the decrees of the king were proclaimed, and the decrees were fulfilled. Um, I don't know that this is 100% a parallel, but it did occur to me that the three days after which the treasure was delivered to the house of God, there are some intriguing parallels that I would like to explore further between what it says here, what it says in the Psalms, and what is described in terms of Jesus in the book of Ephesians, where it says that after he had conquered death, he distributed gifts among men. Three days of seeming nothing happening, and then there is a declaration of kingship on the part of Jesus and a distribution of primarily spiritual gifts, but I would say that it parallels this distribution of the gifts of the pagan king and of the people of Israel here in uh, Ezra chapter 8, that God in more than one occasion throughout history has accomplished and collected and provided great riches and then distributed them to his people in times of need. Here, the reestablishment of worship in Jerusalem, Ephesians 4, the founding of the church. Ezra's list of tasks in chapters 7 and 8 sounds probably overwhelming to many of us. He wants to go and he studied God's law. He's trying to follow God's law. He wants to continue teaching God's law. He gets the people organized. He oversees a vast sum of money. He organizes a prayer meeting and a fast to prepare for their journey so that they arrive there without incident. He's communicating with the king. He's communicating with pagan governors. He's got a lot of things going on. I think he was able to accomplish all of these things because I would say he had the attitude that parallels William Carey, the missionary, who said this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I think we should consider his example. And in the present moment um, that we find ourselves in as a church, I think it would be tempting to say there's lots of things going on. There's too much. It's overwhelming. How are we going to figure it all out? I would say when we see the example of Ezra, that should motivate us to say, let's press forward for God despite the fact that there are many things to figure out. 
I want to share with you um, a clipping I found back from 1965 when I was looking for um, trying to get the tax exempt taken care of for the archery and I was going back and forth with the city of Royal Oak had to find a bunch of documents and I was looking through all the files downstairs and I found this clipping from uh, John Hunter who was a former pastor of the church uh, it's quite possible as I read this to you that you may have the same initial um, response that I did when I read it, which was maybe the phrasing sounds a little bit strange. He, he words it in a way that we wouldn't say it quite the same way today. But I think if you listen for the heart that stands behind it, I think it is admirable and stirring along the lines of the example of Ezra. He said, on January 1st, 1957, we started the adventure called Oak Baptist Church together. The gospel ship Oak had just weathered some stormy seas, and for a time it seemed as if it would founder. However, on the above date, a new captain came on board and took up his position on the bridge. The waves were still running high, and the good ship dipped into the wind and storm. Keeping it on a level keel was well nigh impossible, and we had to meet each new day in prayer. For a while, calm weather prevailed, and we had the opportunity to make a few repairs to the damaged vessel, but as it is in all sea experiences, the calm did not last too long. Once again, we were brought face to face with the stormy elements, and once again we had a difficult task in keeping her head into the wind. For several months the storm raged, and as if a miracle had happened, and it had, we sailed out into comparatively calm seas. The ship had been lightened in that some of the crew decided to abandon ship rather than face the storm. All through this experience we had the thrilling joy of knowing that the master of earth and sky and well as sea was in control. Once again we set out to trim the ship and try to bring her into the harbor of blessing. A tremendous amount of work needed to be done. New crew members had to be recruited. Men had to be trained to do the necessary work on the decks. On the main deck, a great amount of, I think it means repair, had to be done. In the boiler room, new equipment had to be installed. Only one verse in the logbook could describe the scene, Nehemiah 4 and verse 6, the people had a mind to work. Now the voyage of eight and a half years has come to an end, and a new captain must take over his duties on the bridge. We pray that the Lord himself will select the captain for this uh for this part of the voyage but as ahead um sorry this is a copy and it's kind of hard for me to read uh it has been renamed oh the gospel ship oak has been renamed the ambassador this was taken from second corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 you have a good crew and some first rate officers and he talks about uh deacons and those in charge of maintenance and those on the on the pulpit committee and then he says, in the background will be men of experience in taking a gospel ship through heavy seas and treacherous waters, Reverend Harry uh, Manchiner and Dr. Leo Stocks. Now let me say to you, my fellow crewmen and friends, it has been a great voyage. It's lasted eight and a half years, and we have many pleasant memories. We will carry the memory of your kindnesses with us to our new ship. Perhaps one day we shall anchor together in a port on a foreign shore and relive some of our experiences together. Some tears have been shed during the voyage. And some folk on board were terribly seasick and had to be carefully nursed. But through it all, we have rejoiced in those who have been recruited to the cause of the owner of the line. As our voyage draws to a close, our earnest prayer is that you will stand together and allow the officer charged with the selection of a captain do his work, unhindered by anything that would displease him. For six more Lord's Days, we shall be at the helm of this good old ship. They will bid you God's richest blessing as you launch out on another voyage with a new captain, but under orders from the master of the line himself. Yours in gracious thankfulness, John and Isabella Hunter. Now, I read that for you, not because everything was probably going perfectly in that day, because in every human endeavor, there is some good and some bad mixed in, right? 
I read that to you not because this is some kind of a resignation letter for me. I just want to make that very clear as well. I read that to you because it was a good reminder for me as just looking back over the past year, lots of conversations I've had with different ones of you and questions about the future of our church when it comes to uh, finances and buildings and more importantly, what's our mission as a congregation and all of those sorts of things. It's a good reminder that I'm not the first person to wrestle with those things and even in the life of our church. Um, I also read it to you because while God worked through Ezra, I think that it was, um, you know, when Ezra gets there, there's, this, there's sort of this moment of anticipation and the work is going well and all those sorts of things. And then next week we're going to get to the fact that Ezra has to unravel the fact that the people have wandered away from God, continue to intermarry with the people of the land, continue to uh, not follow God wholeheartedly. And so there's a sense in which the exile solved the problem of idolatry, but it didn't solve a new problem that it had arisen, which was their old bent to sort of mix with the people of the land. The reason and the parallel I think that ties into what I just read for you is there are moments in which God works in amazing ways and accomplishes things in the life of our church. And sometimes shortly following after those moments, there's again stretches of difficulty and things that we have to work through and just um, things that we desperately need God's help. Like he says in the letter, we had to begin each new day in prayer. And so I think there's a lot of good reminders in a letter like this. And here's the other thing that... um, that I was thinking about as I, as I read this letter and how it ties into the history of our church, the, the parallel with Ezra. Cyrus sends this decree and there's this great and glorious fulfillment of God's promises to his people They go back. Then there's a period of opposition, same thing under Darius. Then, as I would argue, there's a period of opposition, same thing under Artaxerxes. And then... From the time of the return of Ezra and the Nehemiah, they've rebuilt the temple, reestablished worship, rebuilt the walls, been you know back at the land as the people of God, where they're supposed to be. Then we look at the situation in Jesus' day. Think about the contrast between the scribes of Jesus' day and Ezra. What happened? And here's, here's what I would say, just, just very specifically, if that happened in the space of 350, 400 years between the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the time when Jesus came, sometimes it doesn't take that long for us to get off course and to wander away from what God's calling us to do and to lose our heart for God. So Ezra has this zeal for God. He said, I'm going to know what God has said. I'm going to do what God has said. I'm going to teach other people what God has said. The scribes in Jesus' day, it's pretty clear, I think, historically and from glimpses we see in the Gospels, were no longer really studying the law. They were studying what people had said about the law. Why? Because Jesus constantly confronts them about their upholding of man's traditions over against the actual words that God laid out for them. What does God want you to do? What's the summary of of all that was in the law of Moses? Love God with the entirety of your being. Love your neighbors, yourself. And you have managed to twist what God has said so that you will take an ounce of some kind of spices 
and measure out 10% of it and tithe that to God, and the widow next door to you is starving, and no one's looking after her. So how can you say you love your neighbor as yourself when you don't love your neighbor, but you pretend to love God by being very exacting about all of these traditions? What, what was also true of the scribes in Jesus' day? They were not really practicing the law. I just was talking about that. They, they had gone off to study the traditions of the rabbis, which then meant they weren't following and obeying what God has said. They were following what the rabbis had said and what their teachers had said and all those sorts of things. And so there needed to be a return to what God had said, which is why Jesus' ministry was so refreshing. He taught them as authority, not as the scribes. And then the last part, to teach other people, what was the job of the scribes? The job of the scribes was by and large to teach the people so that they were walking with God. The priest would do the offerings. The scribes would teach the people. That's what Ezra set out to do. And when we come to the Jesus day, the time of the founding of the early church, the scribes weren't teaching the people either. Or at least what they were teaching them was not really what God wanted them to teach. I think one of the underlying assumptions that was flawed in Jesus' day by the people of Israel as a whole was, we're God's people Israel, so God is with us. So go back to what I said uh, at the beginning. How do we know if God's blessing is upon us? Let me read for you an excerpt from Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, Paul's addressing this issue with the Jewish people and saying, are you better than the Gentiles? How does that relate to the message about Jesus? And he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written." For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgression of the law, this has be, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So this was the external rite and marker of being a good Israelite. If the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, the Gentile, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? And this is the summary that's really important. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. If you boast in the law but disobey it, it's a false boast. And those who keep the law or follow after God, the law of Christ, I would argue for the church today, are truly God's people, not just those who outwardly bear his name. So here's the thing that I think would be a warning for us and something that we should deeply ponder because it's been something that I've been thinking a lot about. You and I need to make sure that we don't confuse apparent blessing with God's hand at work in our lives. 
I think it's very clear from Ezra 7 and 8, they succeeded in their task because God was with them. But we cannot say the God was, is with me part unless we say the, and I am seeking after God according to Ezra's example part. Because what can happen sometimes is that there were long stretches where the people of Israel had prosperity and apparent success and God was clearly not with them. And what was the test? The test was, were they following after God? And to the extent that the answer was no, the success, financial stability, whatever else it might have been, that was not proof of God's hand on them. That was merely God letting them go their own way so that in time they would see the effect of wandering away from him and not trust in all those sorts of things. So how can we avoid their situation? Not the the positive note of triumph that we see maybe in Ezra 7 and 8. God is with us. We have sought after him. We have zeal for him. Do we have to make the same mistakes, sinful choices, foolish, whatever, however we want to describe it, that happened between Ezra's day and Jesus' day among the people of Israel? I would argue, no, we can avoid their bad example. We don't have to make those same mistakes. But going the right way starts by following Ezra's example. We have to fervently seek after God in all the ways that he modeled. Studying the scripture. What does it actually say? Practicing it. How do I live it out? Passing it on to others. This isn't just for me. I pass this on to other people around me. If we lack one or more of those things, we may well find that God's apparent blessing is not really his blessing at all but rather a step along the way to bring his people back to himself. Here's the really sobering thing. If God sent his people into exile to purge them of idolatry and destroys their temple in AD 70 to to work on purging them of spiritual hypocrisy and sets them aside for a time, as Romans 11 would say, to provoke them to jealousy by his work among the Gentiles, How motivated do you think God is for you to follow him in the right way? And so the thing that I would think all of us need to wrestle with as we think about both what it says in Ezra 7 and and the comparison to the New Testament and an application for our own lives today is that you and I individually need to make sure that we are seeking after God and the apparent blessing that we have in our lives is not just our own imagination. You and I could be in a position where our bills are paid or there's not much struggle with that, where our, our marriages are, are holding together and things are going okay, where there's, no, there's no, no big problems with our kids that we're worried about, where, where life seems to be more or less all right and our default thought is that means God is happy with me. The test from the book of Ezra, from the New Testament, and I think from our own experience, if we reflect on it, is whether the supposed blessing came by seeking God or following your own way. If it came by your own way, we can't really call it God's blessing. We can maybe call it God's common grace, but we can't call it God's blessing. If it came by following God on the other side, it may feel like your life is falling apart, but if it has started with I am earnestly and fervently seeking after God, then even if sickness, 
loss of job, all of those other sorts of things come into your life. I would argue God's hand is upon you. But we tend to focus on this side over here, right? If everything is going well, doesn't matter where my heart is before God. And I would argue it matters most where our hearts are before God because all of this, God has the capacity to work all of that out, right? God has the capacity, if God could tell a pagan king, like I said last week, if God could tell a pagan king, we're going to pay for the rebuilding of God's house, we're going to make sure that you get to where you need to go, we're going, I'm going to, uh, we're going to make sure that nobody bothers you once you get there, this is, this is something like saying if the United States and China and Russia all banded together and they said, we're going to meet all of the needs of the churches and make sure they have a platform to preach the gospel and no one's going to stand in their way. You're like, how could that possibly happen? God has the power to do that if he so chooses, right? So the question is not lack of power and ability on God's part. The question for us is, where are our hearts before him? Because what we want to do is we want to start with, how am I going to pay these bills? We want to start with, how do I have personal stability in my life? How do I have whatever it is? What God calls us to do is say, where am I at in walking with him? Where am I at in walking with him? That's the question that we have to ask. Here's the hope. If, if you ponder that question, do I have the same zeal for God that Ezra did? And the answer is no. God says the path forward is to confess that to him and turn back to following after him. If the answer is yes, I do have that zeal for God, but I, all of this seems to be a mess, then I would reassure you that all of the apparent lack of here and now blessing from God should not make you think that pursuing him wholeheartedly wasn't worth it. And to the extent that both are true, you're fervently seeking after God and life is going well, I would warn you the same way that I think the people of Israel probably needed to have been warned shortly after the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is things are going really well right now. That doesn't guarantee tomorrow. And so when I look back at this letter that talks about the history of our church, I think we can identify with a lot of the things that he's talking about. I don't know him. I don't think he's still alive. But he talks about the fact that there had to be a lot of prayer and that God had to be there and there was a lot of uncertainty at different points along the way and all of these sorts of things. I don't think that's so very different from today. So the fundamental question is, how do you know if God's hand is on your life? If you, like Ezra, set your heart to seek God in the way that Ezra modeled for us, then regardless of all the rest of the things that are going on in your life, I think you can say, God's hand is with you. But we shouldn't just assume it. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these truths from the life of Ezra, we thank you for godly examples, people who were, were fervent in their pursuit of you and who you then used to have conversations with the ruler of the known world to accomplish amazing things in the life of your people. 
We see the same thing in the life of Nehemiah that hopefully we'll look at uh, in the not-too-distant future. Someone who is walking with you and you put him in a position to unfold amazing things in the life of your people Israel. Lord, I realize most of us are not going to have the remembered impact of someone like Ezra and Nehemiah on entire nations and people groups. But like the letter I read from the history of our church reminds us, each of us has an opportunity to leave some kind of impact on every person around us. And that's going to be an impact that honors you or an impact that dishonors you. And it comes down to where are our hearts at before you. And I think we wrestle with that, Lord, because I think there's a lot of moments where You can, it can feel like you're distant or that we're trying to follow you after the right way. Maybe it feels like it's not working. Lord, I ask that you would help all of us not to lose heart that you are what we need, that you will finish the work you have began in us to the extent that we're trusting in you through the work Jesus did and have your Spirit's power, you will keep doing that work. So Lord, help us not to quit. Help us not to rest comfortably. Help us to press forward in following after you. So that we can look back on our lives and say, not at every moment along the way, because here's this moment when I wasn't following you the way that I ought to have, or here's this moment when... I was trusting in myself or, or whatever it might be. Not every moment along the way, but the testimony of our lives at the end of them can be God's hand was with me and I served him. And now there's other people who are ready to do it because of me having been here in this world. Lord, I pray that that would be our hearts. Amen.